Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about leading people to become fully surrendered followers of King Jesus. Good morning. So in the Greek Orthodox Church, about 3 a.m. this morning, somebody would have gotten up and they would have said, He is risen. In fact, they really would have said, do not let your hearts be troubled, for he is risen. And then the congregation actually at 3 a.m., this is like a conclusion of kind of a midnight service, would have responded with this overwhelming yell or cry that he is risen indeed. Can we do it? Do not let your hearts be troubled. He is risen. He is risen do not let your hearts be troubled. He is risen. Come on. Amen and amen. Good morning. I wonder what it will look like when the hosts of heaven, when we get to see the hosts of heaven dance and worship at the feet of King Jesus. Corey, thank you. I don't know where Corey's sitting, but thank you for your leadership. Thank you for bringing your dance troupe this morning. That was a beautiful addition. Okay. Happy Easter. Um, I am in Luke 22. We're going to pause our Acts uh, kind of progression, and I want to take you to Luke 22. We're also going to take a look at Exodus um, 6. If you want to put your uh, finger there, Exodus is at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. um, And then Luke is right at the beginning of the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, um, Luke chapter 22. If I could do anything with you this morning, if I could transport us somewhere, here's what I would love to do. I would love to walk with us as a church and I'd take you to the Mount of Olives, which is right outside the old city walls in Jerusalem. And we would walk down that Mount of Olives where Jesus went with the donkey when all the people came out and shouted Hosanna. And we would enter into the old city gates. And I'd take you over to the temple where he went and threw the money changers Um, tables, and then I would actually take you back up to the Mount of Olives where he went, and he had the Last Supper where he instituted communion, where he really began the celebration of Easter, and then I would actually walk with you through the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus went that night on Good Friday or Thursday night, and where he sat and settled with finality that it would be God's will and way and not his own, and then I would take you from the Garden of Gethsemane, and I would walk you Uh, from where they arrested him into the old city walls where he was tried before Caiaphas and the great Sanhedrin, and then where he was tossed over to be tried before Pilate and sentenced. He was beaten and brutalized. And then I would walk with you outside the old city walls, and we would stand at this little mount called Golgotha or Calvary where he was most likely crucified at this exact spot. And then I would take you from there to the garden tomb. And I would actually have you enter in because the garden tomb is, guess what? It's empty. And I'm not positive it's the exact tomb, but I would guess it is very similar and is probably in almost the same geographic location. And I would have you enter into the garden tomb and experience the vast emptiness therein because he is risen. This Jesus is alive, and if you're here today, if you don't know him, if you don't have a personal abiding relationship with him, I pray that as you experience this particular Sunday, that you might open your heart and your mind and say, God, if you're real, would you reveal yourself to me? As we look at some of these passages. There's a guy named Paul 
Tillich, who nobody's ever heard of. But he wrote a book called The Protestant Era. And listen to what he said. He said, we're living in an age of the church in which we are threatened with the death of the sacraments. Sacraments is like communion, the Lord's Supper, water baptism. And he goes on to suggest that while they're being celebrated as often as ever, you can celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper all around probably this city at different churches. But while they're being celebrated as often as ever, they're becoming stranger and stranger and less and less meaningful to those who share in them. And here's what I want to open up here in Luke 22 this morning is while the sacraments are built into sort of the fabric and the structure of the church, the risk is that we, as we celebrate sacraments, as we even gather on an Easter Sunday, that this becomes more ritual than actual reality. That becomes more of a formalism, more of a thing that we do going to church as opposed to a relationship in which we find ourselves. That it becomes something that we feel a compulsion to do or we have to uh, do something or orient our lives in a certain way or maybe even clean up the outside of our lives so that we appear a certain way instead of recognizing the bankrupt state with which God calls us to actually come to him and lay our lives down and take on and exchange the character and likeness of Christ in our own lives. So I want to look at this morning on this Easter Sunday, Luke 22, because it is where Jesus celebrates with his disciples the Passover. And the Passover is this thing in the Old Testament. I will try to tie this all sort of together for you. But it's the thing in the Old Testament that actually becomes the Passover celebration is, um, is sort of uh, made new in and through Christ. And it becomes communion or the Lord's Supper. Okay. And that really is what Easter is about. So think with me about the Lord's Supper. What is communion? What is the Lord's Supper? What do we do? Yep, we break bread. What else do we do? Juice, wine, yep. And symbolically, Jesus is saying we break the bread, we take the wine, we appropriate the body of Christ and the blood of Christ into our lives. So this is the very passage where Jesus institutes that in Luke 22. And what's funny is he's got all of these disciples together. He keeps telling them what's about to happen, but do they get it? No. Boneheaded guys. I don't think I would have been any different. Don't get it. And yet, and even after this little passage we're going to read, they get in an argument about who was the greatest. Unbelievable. All right, let's start. Um, I am in Luke 22. I'm going to start in verse 7. Father, I pray that as we read these words, you would help us transition from seeing the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of communion, uh, from a ritual to allowing us to see it as a vibrant reality in which we live. Okay, Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Okay, so Passover, just quick uh, history, Old Testament. Um, in the book of uh, Genesis, um, Joseph and all of the Israelites end up living in Egypt. Um, and they become imprisoned by the Egyptians for 430 years. Okay, brutal. They're slaves. Um, they are 
it's what it happens to them is terrible. Their babies are being thrown into the Nile River and killed. Um, they are being hated. They're being abused. And uh, God raises up someone called Moses to come in and lead these people from their captivity or their slavery in Egypt through the desert um, and into the promised land. Okay? The celebration of Passover, so what Jesus is getting ready to celebrate here in verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus is celebrating Passover with his disciples. So in the Old Testament, God told Moses that as you exit the promised land, or excuse me, as you exit Egypt, as I deliver you from the slavery of Egypt and take you out into the desert and then into the promised land, you are going to do this celebration. You're going to have this sort of celebration every single year to remember my deliverance of you from Egypt. Make sense? Okay, so there's several things that are instituted. I'm not going to take you through the whole thing, but they, they eat unleavened bread because they left Egypt in haste. The other thing they do is they actually um, kill and eat a lamb. And the way God instructed Moses was they actually um, took the blood of the lamb on some hyssop branches and they put it around the doorpost of the houses. Um, and then they cooked the lamb in the fire and they ate the lamb. So the blood of the lamb is sort of symbolically around them. And then they're actually eating the blood of the lamb. So Jesus, as he's sitting with his disciples on this particular day, right before he goes to the cross to be crucified, dead, buried, and then resurrected on Easter Sunday, he is saying to them, I am now becoming the Passover lamb. I am fulfilling the old covenant. I am fulfilling the Mosaic law. I am fulfilling all of the Old Testament. And I am becoming this lamb that had to be sacrificed. All right, verse 8. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Okay, so there's going to be some lamb, there's going to be some unleavened bread, there's going to be some bitter herbs, there's going to be uh, some wine. Verse 9, where do you want us to go to prepare for it, they asked. He said, as you enter the city, what city? Jerusalem. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Go and make preparations there. Verse 13, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Okay, a couple things here. Let's, let's sort of tee this thing up. Um, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Were chairs being used at this point in time? No, amazingly. So there's a big table in the middle of the floor. There's um, his 12 apostles and Jesus. So there's 13 of them there. They're all like probably leaning on an elbow, reclining around this table. And that, that becomes important here in a little bit. Um, and then, but, but when he sent Peter and John ahead to make preparations, and this is the part that I want to focus on today, there's one thing that Peter and John did. And they would have poured four glasses of wine or four cups of wine for each person. There's a couple of different ways they could have celebrated this, and we can't tell from the text exactly how they did it. Each person may have only had one cup that was filled four times, or each person may have had four cups, or that it's even possible that they actually passed a common cup around among all 13 of them. But regardless, each person had four cups of wine. Now, let me just make a theological statement. If you're given to too much alcohol, don't take this as license. John the, John the Baptist came abstaining. Jesus came drinking. There is no law in the New Testament. Be free. 
but don't take this as license. Okay, got it? All right, so each person was given four cups of wine. This is part of the Passover um, preparation or celebration. Now, kick with me back to Exodus 6, and I'm going to explain to you where these four cups of wine came from. Now, as you're going back to Exodus 6, here's what I want you to grab. These four cups of wine uh, symbolized four promises of God. All right? Now, can you and I, we actually live in a day and age where um, promises are broken all the time. We've had employers break promises. We've seen spouses break promises. We see, we, as parents, sometimes we break promises inadvertently to our kids. But when God makes a promise or issues a promise, can we build our life on it? Yes. Now, very important though, does that mean it's going to be fulfilled in your timetable? No. Or in your way? No. Or in your will? No. In fact, I see so many Christians who latch on to a legitimate promise of God, but then they, they build around it a set of assumptions on time and the how and the what, and, and, and then if it doesn't happen, they feel like God broke his promise. And I always want to sit with them and go, okay, let's, let's go back to what did God actually promise? Because if God promises something, there is a guarantee of fulfillment. So the reason the Jewish people are celebrating with four cups of wine at Passover um, and in the New Covenant, so in the, the, the celebration of communion, what does the wine represent? The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. So it's, it's, I think, essential to understand the New Testament celebration of communion, to understand what it even means to appropriate the body and blood of Christ into our hearts and lives. Um, and I think you can get a richer, more full meaning of what Jesus is even saying when he says, this is my body broken and this is my blood poured out for you. So if you can understand sort of where it is coming from. Okay? All right, so Exodus 6. Old Testament, we're going to start in verse 6. Now, this is God speaking, and he's speaking to Moses. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Everybody hold up one finger. That's promise number one. I will bring you out. Out of what? Slavery. Out of being hurt, out of being abused, out of being violated, out of being told what to do and when to do it. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. Cup number two. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you. Cup number three. With an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give you to, to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. So, uh, number one, I will bring you out. Number two, I will rescue you. Number three, I will redeem you. And then number four, I will bring you into the land. 
So when Jesus is celebrating this Passover celebration, there would have been probably four cups at all uh, 13 um, seats or the place where they were reclining at the table. And as this Passover dinner progressed, it would have been a multiple-hour dinner, um, they would have taken uh, each cup in in time. There would have been a prayer or, or a scriptural recitation that they would have recited, and then they would have drank the cup in remembrance of the promises. Okay. Let's open this whole thing up with God promises to rescue each of us from bondage. Okay? God promises to deliver us from whatever holds us back. God promises to help you and I discover his intention for our lives. And he promises to make us part of his larger family. And I think what's very unusual is biblically the Lord's Supper. So what Jesus is instituting, you can flip back to Luke 22. It's only one cup and one piece of bread. But it's, a, it's like Jesus is taking the four Old Covenant or Old Testament promises. And he is now saying, I am becoming the lamb, um, the blood, the bread, the body. And he's, making, he's taking it from four and he's going down to one. It's really interesting because the other time that Jesus does this is he takes the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. And what's he pulling? them down to two two so he said all ten commandments can be brought down to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and if you look at all the old testament commandments you can actually fit them all into those two statements same thing is happening here with these four cups these four promises this is who god is his character never changes he offers the same thing to us today so i want to open up now this and sort of take a look at these four cups or these promises almost in order so the first cup that we see here is the cup of sanctification or the cup of salvation. I will bring you out. In fact, let me go back and read this because I want to read it for you and then we'll unpack it. Okay. Um, Verse 14. The hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What's he saying is going to happen? I'm going to die. Like he's been telling them this. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Verse 17, after taking the cup, one of the four cups, that's what he's taking. This is probably the third cup, um, I would think. Not positive, but probably the third cup of the four. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he says, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread He gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Have you ever been to a a more formal church and sometimes they'll have actually a table. Um, I'd actually love one of these tables. We don't have one at Saltbox, but I'd love one. Um, But it says, oftentimes it's carved in the front of a a wooden table. It'll say, do this in remembrance of me. You ever seen that? That's where this comes from. It's a literal quote. After... uh, Verse 20, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. This is probably the fourth cup. He took the cup, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Okay, so let's open this door, and let's ask and see if we can wrestle out what are these promises of God? What do they mean to our lives now? How do we apply them? How do we live in them? And and do these promises even interact or, or intersect our lives in 2023? All right? You ready? 
Okay, cup number one, the cup of salvation or the cup of sanctification. I will bring you out from what? Slavery, from bondage. Now, today, um, do, are we as people often in bondage to things? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's all out in the open. Sometimes they're hidden things in the back of our heart. Sometimes they're like noble, sort of seemingly good-looking things that our society even approves of. Can I be addicted to my own, you know, savings account or my own budget or my own success or my own whatever, followers on Instagram? Yes. Can I become enslaved? Can you and I become enslaved or in bondage to any number of things other than Jesus? Yeah. So when he says, I will bring you out, this is like, this is salvation. This is when you come to Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, there's a simple yet supernatural prayer of surrender where you just appropriate the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus into your heart and into your life. But sanctification is, it's a big old Bible word. It's like, what does that mean? But it means, um, a lot of people would, would think it means like perfect or like righteous, but it actually doesn't. It means set apart. Abby and I have this, um, my uh, grandmother, so our kid's great-grandmother, gave us a set of this um, silver uh, silverware, silver silverware, okay? We don't use it every day. In fact, we've never used it. But yesterday, we, and this is really funny, but yesterday, uh, because I always work on Easter Sunday, you know that? So Abby says, this year, we're going to celebrate Easter on... Saturday. So yesterday, Abby and I and our kids, we, saw, we had this great Easter celebration. And she said, I'm going to take the silverware that is sanctified. It is set apart. She didn't use that word, but I was thinking it when she said it. Oh, this is a good example. It is set apart. It, is, um, it has been reserved. It has been set aside. It, is it righteous? No. Is it particularly holy? No, uh, but it is set apart. And that's actually in the, in the Greek and in the Hebrew what holy means. It just means set apart. So the first thing that God is actually saying here is my people have been set apart. My people have been sanctified. My people, I am offering them salvation. And un, up until the earth ends and King Jesus returns, if you want to read about that, read about it in the end of the book in Revelation. But up until that day, he is offering to every human in existence that is breathing in this day and age an, a, an offer to respond to his great love and join those who are sanctified or set apart. Okay? So what's beautiful about this is, um, is that silverware in and of itself special? Not really. What makes it special is that Abby keeps it in a little box set apart, set aside. And occasionally she brings it out. And it was really funny to watch her and Amelia like polish this little silver and set the table. And it became this special thing. And I thought, this is, what, this is how God feels about his kids. I have set you apart. I am bringing you out. So the first thing that God is offering to all of us is that you are set apart. You are set aside. You are special. It's like this is uh, an old school church. If you came from old school church and you think about a church sanctuary. You know, there's certain things like, don't do that in the sanctuary. You remember that? Oh, you can't do that. 
Is some of that wrong? Yeah, probably. Is all of that wrong? Well, what they're saying is it's sanctified. It is set apart. It is holy. And all of the sudden, if you can begin to think of your life, you take that first cup and we drink the first cup and we're going, I am set apart. Now, listen to me. When you get up and face your Monday and your Tuesday and you, get, you, you lose a job, you get a terrible health diagnosis, uh, you, one of your kids is in trouble, um, whatever trial and tribulation you are facing on this particular week or the next week or whenever it is, if you can begin to go, hang on, my God is the God that has sanctified me and set me apart. I may not understand this, I may not like it, I may even disagree with it, but I am choosing to bow my knee to it and I can trust that he is a good father and whatever he intends to use this evil or hard or difficult situation for, it will be good because I am sanctified, holy and set apart, bought with a price by the blood of Jesus and Jesus celebrated it with his disciples and he's offering me to celebrate the same thing as a New Testament believer. Body and blood of Christ. Cup number one. Like, it's amazing to me how we as Christians, like we celebrate the communion table, we celebrate the communion feast, we look at Easter, and yet we lose the meaning. Like there's something so powerful if we can get back to what the Lord Jesus is saying and the, the magnitude of what he is communicating to us as his body of believers. You can be set free from your past you can be set free from abuse that happened to you when you were a kid. You can be set free from pain of losing a father or mother. You can be set free from something you've done to someone else. You can, I mean, the, the, the Israelites under Pharaoh were set free uh, totally. They walked out under total freedom. And if we went back and looked at Exodus 12 and 13, Pharaoh drove them out in the end. Leave my country. And they walked out free. That's an offer for you and I. Take the cup. Promise number one. Promise number two is the cup of deliverance, which is like a, I don't know, um, it's like a weird word in our, you know, you think of some horror movie, right? Deliverance. Thank you for laughing. But what this is, is it's a promise to rescue you. Um, so, so let me unpack this a little bit. If, you, if I took you through the Old Testament and we looked at Exodus, what you would find is first God delivered the people from slavery. He delivered them from the land of Egypt. But what happened is they get out into their freedom and their hearts are still in bondage to Egypt. Let me say it a different way. You can get a person out of Egypt, but then you've got to get Egypt out of the person. You hear me? Like, you can get set free in Christ Jesus. We are free indeed. He has bought us with a price. If you're in him and he's in you, you are free. But most of us get up and don't exercise the full measure of freedom that he's given us. Most of us actually get up and we live in bondage to various things because we think and don't believe that the power of the cross can truly get Egypt out of us. Listen to me. It doesn't matter what you have lived through, how dark it is, how difficult, what you've done. This is the God that will not only deliver you from Egypt, but he will deliver Egypt from you. Flip metaphors and say it a different way. If you're a regular here, you hear me say this. God doesn't just want to get you to heaven. 
That's a super simplistic view of Christianity. Is it right? Kind of. Does God want you in heaven? Yes. But more importantly, he actually wants heaven in you now. Heaven is a person. Heaven is a presence. Heaven is not a geographic location that we're all going to go to. Heaven is a person. So he wants to get the presence of the Lord Jesus, the person of the Lord Jesus, the Godhead of the Trinity. He wants to get God in you now. So he wants to get you out of Egypt. I have uh, redeemed you or I have sanctified you. I've brought you out of slavery. Then I have delivered you or I have rescued inside of you, setting you free from the things that are holding you bound to the past. And I want to get Egypt out of you. And then I want to get heaven into you. You know what's funny is uh, in this uh, Christian culture in which we live, we often think that it's the job of the preacher to be the one that always shares Jesus. Right? I'll bring my friend to church. The preacher will share Jesus with him. Right? My job, this is really funny. Get ready. My job is actually to prepare you, and your job is to preach Jesus. That's part of heaven being in you. I don't know your friend at work. I don't sit in that next to them in the cubicle. I don't interact with them. I'm not out on the soccer field with your kids. Who is, whose job is it to share in the eternal blessing and calling to share Jesus with those people? Those people. Ours. Come on. My job is actually to empower and call you into the fullness of the kingdom of God. And your job, and our job, I'll put myself in there, is we all leave this place, and church actually isn't about Sunday. Church is about Monday through Saturday. And church is about us taking the person of Jesus, the presence of heaven, and walking out our freedom. And when you meet somebody who is joy-filled, that's a rarity. You meet somebody who is free in Jesus, that's a rarity. You meet somebody who is filled with peace, that's a rarity. You meet with somebody who is confident and not living in fear, anxiety, or defensiveness. It's like, wow, who are you? And how do I get some of that? You hear me? Okay, so cup number one, the cup of sanctification or the cup of salvation, I will bring you out. Cup number two, the cup of deliverance from servitude, I will rescue you. Um, this is, uh, let, me, let me even say it like this. Um, I read a statistic that I thought was really interesting. In the U.S., when someone is um, incarcerated and then released, almost half of them are turned to prison within three years. Why? They've been delivered from prison, but prison hasn't been delivered from them. We can be delivered from Egypt. We can be delivered from slavery. But until you are able to walk in the full freedom of Christ, being delivered from all the things in your past and even in your present, then you cannot fully live free. And this Jesus actually wants us to live free. It is for freedom that he has set us free. Cup number one, I'll bring you out. Cup number two, 
is the cup of deliverance. I will rescue you. The third cup is actually the cup of redemption. I love this word. I will redeem you. Um, I, I, would, I would see this as several things. So again, the meal is progressing. Jesus is reclining. The 12 apostles are all around. He's taking the cups. He is actively instituting the Lord's Supper. He is in process of becoming um, the Passover lamb, being crucified. He is on his way. He knows exactly what's happening. But he's taking these cups and he's, he's blessing and offering not just to the 12 um, apostles, but to the entire body of Christ, even us today, all of of these same promises if we're willing to grab onto them. So third one, I will redeem you. I, I probably see this like um, the splitting of the Red Sea. I could take you there in Exodus. If you haven't read it, you ought to. But the splitting of the Red Sea where the Jews walk through, and this becomes a picture of both water baptism that happens in the New Testament, and it becomes a picture of the infilling power of the Holy Spirit. So you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, triune God, and the infilling power of the Spirit of Jesus or the Holy Spirit comes. And as the Egyptians, or as, excuse me, the Israelites walk through the parting of the Red Sea, they are experiencing this third promise. I will redeem you, I will baptize you, I will fill you with the Spirit. And then you get this idea in Scripture from Genesis all the way through to Revelation that redemption is like the act of discipleship. Okay, let me unpack that just a minute. It is, a lot of us too in Western um, America, we think that like discipleship or the way we grow in Jesus is to learn more stuff. So seminary students, they'd be like the best Christians, right? A lot of seminary students go to seminary and lose their faith because more information doesn't transform the human mind and the human will. What transforms the human mind and the human will is when you actually um, surrender your life to him and this abiding relationship with him takes form inside of you. Now, can education play a part in that process? Yes, but only if the will is engaged. Only if the human will is surrendered. So redemption, or the act of discipleship, it's not learning more stuff. It's learning to abide in deep, significant, ongoing relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the act of, I will redeem you. I will take you out. Third cup. And then the fourth cup that Jesus institutes on this night before he goes to the cross is what the Jews would call the cup of praise. It, you know what's interesting about this? Let me just pause and say this because I think it could be helpful. Passover began this month on the 5th. And Jews who are practicing everywhere still are gathering, pouring these four cups for every person that celebrates it. And then there's even a fifth cup that we're going to talk about in just a minute. But they poured these fourth cups. So the fourth cup that Jesus takes, and I think it's the cup he took um, in verse 20, where it says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, probably number four, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Can you imagine a minute just being the disciples hearing that kind of language before he died? Like, what is, can you imagine, what is he talking about? Like, he is unafraid, unafraid of just initiating. So fourth cup is the cup of praise. That's what the Jews would call it. But I think underneath the cup of praise is a cup of identity and purpose. So not only am I going to bring you 
out. So I'm going to bring you out of the land of the Egyptians. I'm going to deliver you from what's inside of you. I'm going to redeem you and restore you. Cup number three. Now I'm going to bring you into my identity and purpose. In other words, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. What's the promised land? The promised land is who we are in Jesus. The promised land is new creations in Christ. The promised land is accessing the kingdom of God in the here and now. So let's open this up. What is this fourth cup Jesus is then taking? For us, this means taking our place as sons and daughters. Ephesians 1.3, heirs of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Like, I don't even, I spent some time trying to figure out how to even communicate this. I feel like many of us as Christians fall short on this cup number four. Like we don't get it. Because if we truly believed that I'm a son of the king or a daughter of the king, when something terrible happens, what's my response going to be? I'm probably going to go, Lord. For what purpose are you allowing this? I'm going to be pretty level. Okay, Father, show me. Contrast that to something terrible happens, something difficult comes our way, and we pitch a fit, don't we? We get angry. We get frustrated. Why? Or we get stressed out. We get anxious. We yell at our kids. We yell at our spouse. We go into a comatose state and stop talking to anyone and live in anxiety or whatever it is. Like we, we have a hundred different ways of like coping and functioning. But I think a lot of it comes from the fact that we don't live out of our identity of sons and daughters and heirs of Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm convinced that if we could truly get to the place as believers where we get up and we journey through life waiting and watching what our God is going to do in this day and how we can participate with him, then all of a sudden everything we see and the way we see everyone and the way we see circumstances is absolutely transformed and changed. Because the way I see myself is changed. Someone cuts me off in traffic and instead of just, come on, you start going, Lord, would you help them? <laughs> Serious. The person at work that makes fun of you, the person at work that's held you down, the person at work that's insulted you or hurt you or been sarcastic and ugly with you, all of a sudden you begin to see yourself as, hang on, I'm a son or a daughter of the king, and my job is actually to bring the kingdom into their life. So instead of sitting around staring at your own belly button and going, oh man, they're going to do it again, oh, you begin to you upgrade this entire thing and you begin to go, Lord, as a, as a son and as a daughter and as an heir of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, how do I carry you into this situation? You've got a child that's in rebellion or who knows what they're doing and you're suffering under it. It's, Lord, how do I navigate through this? You begin to abide, practicing his presence day by day, moment by moment, living in the kingdom of God, asking the kingdom of God to come into your situation. Can a husband and wife or can spouses do this? Yes. What happens if one of the spouses doesn't or won't? You can still do it. You can walk with Jesus. It doesn't matter when you begin to access this fourth cup, this identity, this like who I am in Jesus. You can actually walk into the fullness of what God has for you in any situation. And it doesn't matter what is happening around you or what you're going through or what you're suffering or what you're under. Because you all of a sudden know I am a son or a daughter of the king and I'm a carrier of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It doesn't produce arrogance. It actually produces humility. But all of a sudden you can hold your head up 
and you can walk with some confidence and some Holy Spirit swagger because you're going, I am going into this situation and I am representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You can be delivered from your insecurity and your lack of confidence and sitting down sort of, ah, how many Christians, we're all wringing our hands. What's happening? What's happening in our country? What's happening in our church? No, 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 no. Get rid of it all. This is Lord Jesus. We are in the most exciting time to be alive in the history of the earth. And how can you and I begin to be carriers of the kingdom of heaven, the promises of heaven, abide in this finished work of the cross and carry it into our environments? This is what you and I were created for. Let me open this because I'm sort of into it right now. There's this idea that there's a difference between those of us who are like um, professional Christians and those of you who aren't. Come on, you know that. You know this. You're like, oh, that's Michael's job. Or, oh, that's the preacher's job. So, so there's this um, idea, and it's existed all, all through, but there's this idea that there is a, a separation um, sort of between uh, who uh, those of us who are professional Christians, those who aren't. What's really funny is I'm not just a professional Christian. You know that? I move dirt around. I'm a landscaper, too. Really, true. I may not always do that, but for now I do. But here's what I want you to get. There is in Jesus, and what Jesus is instituting here, is an invitation that there is a priesthood of all believers, men and women, that he has called you to be the carrier of the gospel. He has given you this purpose. He has called you out of Egypt. He has called you into and through deliverance. He has called you into and to experience the fullness of his redemption. And then he has called you into a fullness of identity and purpose so that you can walk with with him and and absolutely experience becoming a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ now. That's you. If you're in Jesus and Jesus is in you, you're a minister of the gospel of Christ Jesus. See, the message is so crystal clear here because God wants to use his power to turn ordinary, everyday people and empower them to do extraordinary things. The 12 guys sitting with him around this table are the most ordinary, simple, uneducated people. And he chose them because you and I fit in the same category. Like this is who we are. This is who God uses. Okay, let me back up and and introduce something else on this fourth cup. Uh, there was a, a psychologist, a counselor by the name of um, Maslow some years ago, 1943, I think, and he actually introduced a hierarchy of human needs. Y'all ever familiar with it? Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. It's, it's not all that important, except people have like continued his work, and the last two needs are, fast, are fascinating to me. So it doesn't even matter if you don't have food and shelter and you know, love and some basic things. You can't even get to these last two needs. But these last two needs that are on his list or whatever are actually self-actualization and then transcendence. Now, I think that Maslow is simply regurgitating what he gleaned through the Scripture. That's my opinion. 
But what I believe here and what I'm even saying to you is this fourth cup, when Jesus is inviting us into identity and purpose as sons and daughters, as heirs, is he is inviting us into self-actualization. He is inviting us into experiencing all of our personal potential, all of our calling, all of our destiny, really believing that he could use the likes of me to really believing that he wants to transform me and equip me and then send me out, really believing that I belong to a family bigger than, than me, that I belong to a purpose bigger than me and that I'm commissioned to carry something that is so much more important than I am. And all of a sudden, we are unlocking this sense of who we were created to be regardless of what field we're in. We don't need a bunch of pastors. We actually need a bunch of priests, the priesthood of all believers out there being pastors pointing people to Jesus. You hear me? That's what transforms a city. That's what transforms a nation. That's what transforms even a world. Transcendence is fascinating because it's like the, it's, it's, it's like the ultimate, um, it, it's the thing that goes beyond. So it's like legacy. It's like we're living um, from this place of identity. It's like uh, exceeding usual limits or surpassing, extending beyond the limits of our ordinary everyday experience. It's fully beyond comprehension. Let me read Ephesians 3.20 to you. Now glory be to God who by his mighty power at work within us is able to do far more than we could ever dare to ask or dream of infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, or hopes. Listen to me, church, and if you get anything today, get this. This fourth cup and what Jesus is instituting here in the cup and the bread and the resurrection life of Jesus is that he would actually call you into something extraordinary beyond yourself, like life beyond what you can even do or accomplish, that you're, ex- you're serving this extraordinary God. You are becoming someone who is able to shift and change your world, not because of who you are, but because of who he is through you. That's how God sees us. I mean, like, think of basic what we want as humans. We want to have our needs met. We want satisfaction. We want, but it often comes when we see ourselves no longer on the sidelines, but in the middle of the action, equipped, fully empowered by the Spirit, living in the Spirit, and then carrying the message of the gospel out to those around us. Ordinary people saying yes to Jesus' call to be the light of the world. Ordinary people saying yes to the call to being the salt of the earth. Ordinary people saying yes to the call to the priesthood of all believers. Ordinary people taking this fourth cup of identity and purpose and becoming who God created them to be and beginning to stand up in confidence that he knows you, he called you, he knows your name, you've got a purpose. There's nothing in your life that has been an accident. He is at work. Let me open this up, and then I want to talk about the fifth cup, and then we're going to tie up our happy Easter. If I could call you to something today as a church, it would be probably to this. Church, start to dream. Let God reawaken hope in your life. Let God reawaken his heart in your life. And whatever you have like thought about doing but aren't doing, write that song. Start to write that book. 
Go pursue that degree. Take your spouse on a date. Begin to save for a new house. Whatever it is, start your diet if you want to change. Like, do whatever it is. Take a step and let the Lord Jesus actually begin to breathe life into you. And actually, as you begin to see these cups of deliverance and redemption and sanctification and then identity and Jesus instituting his body and his blood and offering it to you and I, take this and actually hear him creating that he has put certain dreams and ideas within you and let him awaken this with inside of you. And this isn't like a, um, this isn't you need to feel pressured or you need to be a perfect person. No, no, no. This is like, and you don't, shouldn't be frustrated or defeated, but this is like God Almighty has created you and he has put certain dreams and ideas and things inside of you. Don't let the enemy hold you down. He has called you and he has raised you up and he has equipped you and he has given you a purpose and he wants to send you out. And some of you are sitting on your hands, sitting on your dream going, God, I don't know if that's you. Here's how you find out. Lord, I think it's you. I'm going to take a step. Wow, it worked. Okay, I'm going to take another step. How did Peter, when he got out of the boat and walked on water, did any of the other apostles get out of the boat? Nope, just Peter. And how did Peter do it? He said, Lord, if that's you, call to me. And Jesus said... Come on. But he had to get out of the boat and step on the water. And I want to tell some of you guys, somebody here, please take a note of this and go, God has put dreams and things inside of you. He has redeemed you. He has delivered you. He wants to give you an identity and purpose, and he wants to call you into the fullness of what he has for you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Okay, let me tie it up here. There was a fifth cup that is at the Passover celebration, and the fifth cup was actually for Elijah. Isn't that interesting? It's for Elijah. And it was for Elijah who would introduce, anybody know? The Messiah. So there was a fifth cup here, and I don't know where it is in in Luke 22. It doesn't really say. But if I cross-reference Luke 9, I'm going to read this quickly in Luke 9. Uh, verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and they went up to a mountain to pray. Jesus is always going up on mountains to hang out with God. I love this about him. Verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor. Where did Moses and Elijah come from? Jesus is there with Peter, James, and John. They're hanging out on a mountain. Where's Elijah and Moses? They just, where'd they come from? They came from eternity. A little bit of theology on death right there. Christians don't die. We relocate to eternity. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus, and they spoke about his departure. That's Exodus in Greek. And we're reading, we just read from the book of Exodus, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. So what's happening here is Jesus is sitting with his disciples. He is reclining at the table. He is walking them through the four cups. He is saying, just like I was transfigured on the mountain and Elijah came out, I am the blood, I am the lamb, I am the Passover lamb, I am taking away the sin of the world, I am becoming sin on your behalf because you cannot. I'm going to die the death that you couldn't die. I am calling you into salvation, deliverance, redemption, identity, and purpose. And then I'm calling you to go and live as a body of believers and transform the world that you live. And I'm giving you a purpose. And so we come then to this Easter Sunday and we have to do several things. 
The first thing we do is we're going to look backwards with deep gratitude at what King Jesus has done. And then we're actually going to look forward at what King Jesus is going to do. He's going to return again. And then we look inward and we appropriate this life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and then these promises of God to bring salvation, deliverance, redemption, identity, and purpose. This is no ritual, church. This is reality. Worship team, would you come out? Let's stand to our feet. We are going to close in a worship song here. Father, I pray that as the worship team comes and as we close in a worship song on this Easter Sunday, that you would take us deeper into what it means to live in the promises of God. That you would take us deeper into what it means to be redeemed and rescued and restored. That you would take us deeper into what it means to live as sons, as daughters, as heirs of the Most High. Father, I pray that you would breathe some dreams back into this church, into this group, and that they would take some risk to accomplish and to believe that you might want to work in us in the here and now. Prayer team, would you guys come and make yourself available right up front here? And as they come, would you guys lead us? If you need special prayer, please come on up. I'm going to be standing up here. If you've never given your life to Jesus or if you want special prayer, we would love to pray with you.
Father, as we go from this place today, I pray that you would fill our hearts with the revelation of who you are, King Jesus, risen Lord. Father, I pray that we would grasp that you have called us into the fullness of redemption, the fullness of restoration, the fullness of salvation, the fullness of sanctification, and that you want to live your life in us and through us. Father, as we walk out of this place, would you cause your face to shine upon us and may we hear and know your voice and your presence. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Happy Easter. May you go in Christ. We are back here next Sunday and into the book of Acts. His grace, blessing, and presence with you. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.